0: Just before we start, um, could those of you that are here for the very first time raise your hand? Yeah. Those of you that aren't looking around, look around. There's, raise your hands high. Okay, First, just to welcome you. It's just uh, wonderful to have you here. And that's a lot of people for the first time at, on one night. We usually have some, but um, it's, very, it's lovely. And it was great to meet with some of you earlier. Uh, again, as I mentioned, uh, especially if you're new, please stay around and uh, speak with myself or Lynn or Louisa. I don't know if Forrest is here. Forrest, are you here? Can't see very well. So just stay around and um, ask questions if you have any. And we can get the tape rolling. Over the last week, a number of people have um, made a similar comment to me, and I want to share it with you because it's pretty moving. And that is that they could feel the drought, this earth's drought, in their body and in their heart. They could kind of feel the the struggle and the suffering of um, so many life forms and as I, as i heard that i you know there's a place in me that goes yeah i mean i think the more we pay attention that's how it gets that this sense of an isolated contained self starts dissolving and we're very uh, interwoven with what's going on around us we are of the earth we're in communication with life and that's kind of the description of the bodhisattva of compassion which is the Uh, prototype of the awakened heart in many Asian cultures. Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva, the description of compassion, one who can hear the cries of the world and then, of course, out of care, responds. So the the comment really, I think, came from that place of the awakened heart that really listens. And and it's not some ideal that happens, this um, compassionate response it's who we are we are all interconnected so really it's just this recognition of what's real now the Buddha in his teachings in fact one of the most central teachings that he really presented to the Sangha to the community after enlightenment was of this quality of interrelatedness. The Pali word that describes it, patika samupada, the official language, dependent co-arising, what it really means. If those words don't go at it, we're going to be exploring tonight. But it points to the truth that we exist in relationships. We are completely interrelated, interdependent and that the realization of that is the realization of who we really are. It's been described in a wonderful image, one that I just keep going back to in my own mind's eye because it's so vivid, called the Jeweled Net of Indra. Now, Indra is the god and this jeweled net is this web of life and at every strand that crosses another strand at that intersection there's a jewel and the jewels all the jewels the countless infinite number of jewels are all reflecting and illuminating each other there's no sense of a jewel that exists on its own it exists as it reflects every other jewel it contains all other jewels Hmm. the jewel net of Indra as a way of bringing it into this moment, what it would say is that the experience of this moment, the jewel-like radiant awareness that you might experience this moment to any degree, whatever you experience, is created, determined by immeasurable, innumerable factors. That as you sit here this moment, this experience is determined by who else happened to show up tonight. That's part of what creates this moment's experience. It's created by the technology that's amplifying my voice. It's created by what you ate today. Sometimes that's a big determinant. (laughs) It's created by the thoughts your parents had when they first met each other you wouldn't be here. It's created by the explosion of the supernova that ended up creating the solar system. Those are all very real factors that absolutely affect the experience of this moment. This is another way of saying every moment is conditioned. Every moment. Every moment your experience is radically related to what's happening everywhere. That we're not separate. There's no way if we look closely at our experience that we can identify a separate entity because our whole perception of the moment is constantly changing and constantly influenced by countless other factors. So this teaching of interdependence was the centerpiece really of all the Buddhist teachings. He writes, they who see Patika Samupada see the Dharma, and they who see the Dharma see Patika Sam- Samupada. This radical relatedness. It's what we experience when we look closely. I mean that's what we're doing. Meditation is just simply a way of paying attention to experience. When we pay attention, this is what we see. We don't necessarily see it right away. As some of you have noticed, you start paying attention and you don't see this jeweled net of Indra and all its radiance reflecting, you know, it's not always like that. What we might see first of all are the obscurations, the obstacles to relatedness. When we first pay attention, sometimes we'll see all the clinging, All the resisting that creates a sense of separateness, of being endangered, of being isolated. But that's on its way, because if we can begin to see that, it's in the seeing of the grasping that we begin to relax. The Four Noble Truths is based on this sense of, of causality and relatedness. The Four Noble Truths, if we feel separate, we're going to grasp we're going to resist and in that grasping and resisting we suffer and we see that every day everybody is beginning to see it more and more when we look because it's so clear that if something's pleasant and we wrap around it and try to preserve it and try to own it and hold on tight then they're suffering In relationships, it creates codependence and attachment. We don't get to enjoy the other person. We're so busy trying not to lose their affections. We see it when we resist what's painful, when we're not willing to face some pain in us and then instead we get caught in an addictive behavior because we're running from our inner life when we don't face a difficulty in a relationship with somebody else and end up in some way lying or avoiding each other and really create a breach in intimacy. So we end up living as strangers. We see the suffering. And that's what the Buddha was describing. When this, when we push away our grasp, then this, suffering. In the seeing, we begin to let go. So tonight... I'd like to explore this jeweled net of Indra, what we began to discover, this relational world, uh, from a few different perspectives. And what works for you, the images or the ideas, please let yourself reflect on. And if it feels like it doesn't connect, just drop it. Okay. To begin with, the wisdom of the mystics is more and more being... Uh, illustrated and demonstrated in modern science and in modern physics, and most of you know about that. I get particularly interested in how general systems theory, which has been articulated more and more in the last two decades, describes it. That there are infinite number of self-organizing systems. Our body is one of them, communities are another, the earth is another. Cells, body, earth, And they're created and sustained by the larger dynamics, the kind of laws that operate through the whole universe so that every part contains the whole. Now you might reflect, this is a little guided reflection. The way we define and delimit the self is arbitrary. We can place it between our ears have our little system, our self-system looking out from our eyes, listening through our ears. Or we can widen it to include the air we breathe. That's part of our self-system too. Or at other moments we can cast its boundaries further to include those oxygen-giving trees and plankton, our external lungs, that are right now suffering from drought. And then beyond that, the web of life in which we are sustained. So in modern systems theory and in the, in the idea of the mystics, we can keep widening our circle of belonging. Now, systems theorists describe us as a flow-through And I think that's a wonderful expression, a flow-through of matter and of energy and of information. And we're a flow-through that gets conditioned and transformed by all our other experiences and intentions and conditioned by all the other flow-throughs that are going on. It's easier to see it on a very macro level and a micro level, how totally interdependent every part of this universe is. Some years ago, probably about two, I went to the Smithsonian and saw one of those IMAX films, and I can't remember the name, and I'm assuming that a number of you saw it. It was the one that started where a woman or somebody dipped their hand into some water and then the amazing photography and imagery went into the water and into the cells and the molecules and the atoms and the subatomic particles till it went smaller and smaller so that you saw all these different systems that were embedded in larger systems but going down to smaller 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 and it never got to a to a thing it still was moving and it was still um, not just a particle but just energy moving And then, of course, it got bigger and bigger and bigger and it went to our solar system and then beyond and beyond. And in watching, if you just drop your personal story, it just became clear that any expression of life was embedded in larger systems, was a part of a larger system and had smaller systems within it. That became very clear. There's a... um, Group that d- does these studies that says, you know, what are the chances of this and that and the other thing? And one of theirs was, what are the chances that the next breath you breathe will contain a molecule from Julius Caesar's dying breath? I think they said 99%. So breathe deep. <laughs> but consider it that everything's recirculating, we're all breathing in, breathing out we belong to this web and we intuit this relatedness we intuit a relatedness that goes beyond our ideas of space and our ideas of time many people sense it in prayer that there really is a power to what we put out from our hearts and minds that has an effect on this world I mean, we see it with weather systems, but we intuit it in a personal way. We sense the effect of our thoughts on our own bodies and on other bodies around us. There have been some wonderful stories recently or um, experiments that clinically show how when a number of people pray for somebody that's sick compared to when there's another sick person not receiving any prayer, there really is a difference in the healing There's also tons of studies showing the placebo effect, the effect of thinking that we're going to get well from something. We know of each of us in our lives of these synchronicities where something happens at a certain time that coordinates with something else that's just beyond what seems to be the possibility of coincidence. Now Stan wrote a book, Cosmic Game, and he's one of the great kind of philosophers and teachers of, I think, contemporary times. And he describes a whole range of these kind of synchronicities that really wake you up out of the sense that we're isolated entities that, that kind of illustrate how much relating and communicating and how much is going on between all parts of the universe. And I'd like to read you the story he likes the best on synchronicity. This is about Neil Armstrong. Some of you have heard this. Descending from the lunar module, just before his foot touched the surface of the moon, Neil Armstrong said his famous words, One small step for man, one giant step for mankind. It is much less known that as he was climbing back from the moon surface into the lunar module, he muttered another sentence, Good luck, Mr. Gorsky." After his return to Earth, curious reporters inquired, what does this sentence mean, but Armstrong refused to reveal it. Some thought it might have been addressed to a Soviet cosmonaut, but there was no one of that name. After frustrating efforts of the journalists, the entire affair was forgotten. Last year, at a party in Florida, someone brought it up again. This time, Neil Armstrong felt free to disclose the meaning of the sentence, since in the meantime, Mr. Gorsky and his wife had died. Here's the story he told. When Neil was a boy, the Gorskys were their next-door neighbors. One day, Neil was playing ball in his backyard with his friends. At one point the ball landed in the Gorski's garden under the open window of their bedroom and Neil was appointed to retrieve it. The Gorskis were in the middle of a heated argument. As Neil was picking up the ball he heard Mrs. Gorsky screaming Oral sex? You want oral sex? You'll get oral sex the day the kid next door walks on the moon. <laughs> Good luck, Mr. Gorski. (laughs) It can be a sleeper, I understand. (laughs) So, synchronicity. Now, the truth is that in our day-to-day reality, most of us walk around in this kind of mental world that does not perceive relatedness we're in an orbit that's very driven by what I want and what I fear and because our stories are living in that we're not really listening and paying attention to the amazing amount of interdependence that each moment brings and because of that, because we're living in the storyline we actually feel quite isolated we're in our own little capsules and it's easy to get imprisoned in that In fact, that's the primary suffering, I'd say, of all beings, is that we get lost in the story of being separate. I love the way Rita Rudner puts it. She says, when I was a girl, I only had two friends, and they were imaginary. And they would only play with each other. (laughs) So, we... This is um, from The Universe as a Green Dragon. Brian Swim describes how the universe is waking up to discover its, itself, that that's what we are. We're the universe waking up to who we are. But we go around our day-to-day life not fully realizing who we are. That's not a mistake. The fact that we get caught in that sense of being separate is really kind of part of the unfolding development of who we are. Sometimes a useful way to think of it is that both individually and as a species we began with no sense of separation from the natural world. There was a kind of uh, being one with the world as a child in the womb Not Paradise Lost, just a kind of primal fusion. Anthropologists call it participation mystique. Then, individually and as a species, there's the fall from grace, so to speak. You know, getting kicked out of the garden. And what that really has to do with is we became self-reflective. There became a distance. There became a kind of bearing witness to ourself and our mortality and all the fears around that and all the needs to become somewhat bigger and better. And then this lonely journey of the ego through time and through our lifetime happens where we we struggle with what we're afraid of and what we want until we gradually, because our longing is to reconnect, find our way back home again it can either be described in real negative terms like we got kicked out of the garden because in some because in some way we were sinful or just that that's the way it is part of development is this sense of being separate is doing a lot of this kind of self-reflection is this longing to belong and the journey home again it can be sensed in a quite beautiful way that we're by becoming separate and feeling that longing, there became a deeper cherishing of this life. The way Brian Swim writes it, we became the space in which the universe can be cherished, a mirror for the beauty of life. Out of the separation, a longing to belong. So becoming whole, this, this pathway of becoming who we are, is a process of reconnecting in each moment with the different parts of our being and our life that our mental story has kind of exorcised. The parts of ourselves we decided are not okay, the parts of our body we don't even live in, and then all the sense of this world that we think of as out there and separate, rediscovering relatedness. There are some cultures that are fairly wise and have maintained a sense of a natural connectedness and um, I read something recently I'd like to share that illustrates that Uh, somebody wrote a book on El Nino and really what they were describing is how El Nino has been around at least for the last 5,000 years periodically wreaking havoc in different places, devastating human populations, sometimes even toppling civilizations so, the interesting question that this author is pursuing is how come some civilizations, like the classic Mayan civilization in our culture in Central America, sunk under the onslaught of climatic changes, but others didn't? In other words, what would allow a culture to survive? And what he pointed to, a key factor, was really the flexibility of the people, of their culture and their customs and in that flexibility their kinship relationships how they related to each other in the land so here's an example that for centuries the nomadic herding tribes in Africa Sahel weathered droughts through a combination of both careful grazing practices and also an attunement to the land they took journeys long kind of distance migrations when they needed to, and they relied on food that was stored by relatives, by family. So they kind of went with the swings by being attuned to the land and respectful. Now enter the Europeans. (laughs) Here we have this imperial power that sets up these artificial borders so people couldn't any longer go when they needed to go and come when they needed to come and then they used these intensive farming techniques that, that overgrazed the land and exhausted the land and then population soared in places that couldn't handle it so then in the last decade as many of you know there's been horrendous droughts and the Sahel's depleted trampled topsoil just blew away and tens of thousands of people starved to death and that hadn't happened over the centuries. It was difficult. They didn't live, you know, a very lush kind of life. But they survived with this kind of wise sense of connectedness with each other and the land. The Native Americans have that phrase om in all my relations. And their spiritual practice is one of remembering again and again that we belong to the land and we belong to each other. We suffer if we try to control, manipulate or disrespect. It's the same in our internal healing. Trauma happens when parts of our being feel wounded, rejected, not belonging. They get kind of shoved off. And healing happens when we begin to communicate with the parts of ourselves that have been cut off communicate with friendliness, we begin to include with mindfulness into the whole of our being the places of woundedness. The realization of relatedness is the grounds of all creativity. Many of you know that there's a whole way of beginning to train the left and right hemisphere of our brain to communicate so the intuitive parts of our being and the rational Parts of our being are not compartmentalized so much. Some of you might have read that article about Einstein's brain. How many of you read that? Can I see by hands? Yeah, real interesting just to say that they, in looking at it more carefully recently, (laughs) they found that there's this kind of dividing structure in part of the brain. It's called the parietal operculum and that he didn't have that structure and because of that the neurons in his brain were able to establish more connections, were able to communicate more and they say that that interconnectivity gave him an advantage. It's just interesting when you sense what is it that allows us to wake up our love, our creativity, our creative genius it's the communication and the connection between parts of the whole. So, what happens is we see evidence. We can look through a microscope and see evidence. We can see a time lapse camera and see how, you know, we look at a leaf and it drops off, dies, ends up becoming soil, becomes the nourishing source for the next tree and the next leaf. We can see through Time-lapse photography, how everything changes and becomes part of everything else. And yet our personal story keeps us disconnected from this truth in our day-to-day reality. What's radical about meditation is it begins to um, kind of break open our awareness so that we don't live in those stories that tell us that we're these separate capsules of being. We rather begin to see the fluidness we begin to see that we belong so we'll take a brief just let's sit together for a few moments and explore this and just as a simple way of exploring just bring to mind any stories or ideas about yourself that are familiar to you. Anything about, if you're asked the question, well, who are you? You know, anything about what roles define you, your image of yourself. See how many, we all have stories about ourselves. See how many stories you can just kind of notice. I'm this kind of person, I do that, I like this, I don't like that. just mentally note, okay, stories stories, images, ideas as if you could draw a big frame around them and say, okay, so this is a world of ideas of mental appearances and then take a few breaths and just open up to the awareness that's bigger than that and that senses just what's happening right now that who you are is just your experience of what's happening right now Keep letting go of any thoughts and use your senses, kinesthetic sound. We're a flow through of information. Sense this flow through, this changing dance of sound sensation when the mind gets sticky around an idea or thought simply notice that and relax the grip who are you just turn the mind and look and sense and feel the answer to that in this moment's experience Vibration, tingling, sound. Fear, excitement, confusion, more thoughts. Who we are is all that we experience in awareness. You are not other than the sound you're hearing, it's part of your awareness. For these next few moments as you meditate, whatever appears in awareness, sense that it belongs, that it's part of your life experiencing. By relating with acceptance, including what arises we discover our relatedness Being lost in thoughts, being lost in the way we push aside experience, the way we grasp, obscures that relatedness. It denies it. It covers it up. So really meditation practice is a way of including experience so that we can rediscover that all that arises belongs. That we belong to this web, that this web is a part of our being. Now, there's another way that this experience of interrelatedness has been described that I think is quite beautiful. And the words are, world as lover. That our deepest impulse is to connect, is this love for life, that we're attracted to and have a desire towards living and connecting and being. There's a longing for intimacy. And what that means is that every relationship we're in really is an expression of our spiritual path. And the more awake we are in those relationships, the more awake we are to who we are. I like to sometimes read this at the end of a retreat because we go from retreat into very active awareness of our relationships. And this kind of describes it beautifully from a Sufi perspective. A certain Bektashi dervish was respected for his piety and, ex- and appearance of virtue. Whenever anyone asked him how he had become so holy, he always answered, I know what is in the Quran." Now one day he had just given this reply to an inquirer in a coffee house when an imbecile asked, well, what is in the Quran? In the Quran, said the Bektashi, there are two pressed flowers and a letter from my friend Abdullah. World as lover, that we discover who we are because we're in love with this world. We discover from that in love feeling, the natural connectedness. Again, from this book, The Universe is a Green Dragon, Brian Swim describes this attraction that draws us all together is the same as gravity. Gravity is just another expression of it. It's the force that pervades the universe. And he describes it as an alluring activity that really ignites all being. This alluring activity gives rise to all form, that stars and bodies and cells and communities and all life forms come out of this basic attraction life has to life, to coming together, to connecting, to relating. And I think that's a beautiful way of kind of sensing into what we're about, that we're an expression of alluring activity. You know, this coming together, this urge to connectedness, now, this same sense of world as lover, that this life is drawn to life, to connecting, is um, basic to, the, to Hinduism's kind of cosmology. And just to describe it a bit, the myth of the cosmos is that in the beginning, there was a self-existent one, just one, called Prajapate. And this one beingness was lonely and so it created the world by splitting into that with which it could copulate, which gave birth to all phenomenon. In other words, out of this desire for deeper belonging, the world split into parts so that those parts could come together again. And hence you have Krishna worship, you know, this, this longing to be united with, in a blissful way with the divine. And it's in strains of Sufism and in the Kabbalah and in Christianity, in the tradition of bridal mysticism. It's in every spiritual tradition, this sense that our separateness is really in service of coming together in a deeper, more alive way. Beautiful way to frame it. Now, given that, there's a story that I ran into that really describes world as lover in the most delightful way. So I'd like to share this with you. It takes—it's a l- little longer than I sometimes read, but I'll go ahead and do it. It's called *Cosmocomics* by Italo Calvino, and I found it in one of Joanna Macy's books. So, just to say that this book begins with um, a sentence from science. Through the calculations begun by Edwin P. Hubble on the galaxy's velocity of recession, we can establish the moment when all the universe's space was concentrated in a single point before it began to expand in space. Now, that's the beginning of the book, and then the book describes the evolution of life, but it's from the perspective of an individual who happened to be there before the Big Bang. <laughs> okay, so you have to go with that. We were all there. Where else could we have been? Says Calvino's narrator, Q, as he describes his experience. We're all in that one point, and man, was it crowded. (laughs) Contrary to what you might think, it wasn't the sort of situation that encourages sociability. Given the conditions, irritations were almost inevitable. See, in addition to all those people, you have to add all the stuff we had to keep piled up in there. All the material that was to serve afterwards to form the universe. (laughs) Then he goes on to list a lot of it. So there were naturally enough complaints and gossip but none ever attached to Mrs. Pavacini. She's the main character here. Since most of the names have no vowels, I have to just, that's the name that we have for her. Mrs. Pavassini, her bosom, her thighs, her orange dressing gown, the sheer memory of her fills our narrator with a blissful, generous emotion. Now, the fact that she went to bed with her friend, Dr. D, was well known, but in a point, if there's a bed, it takes up the whole point. So it isn't a question of going to bed, but just being there because anybody in the point is also in the bed. (laughs) So consequently, it was inevitable that she was in bed with each of us. If she had been another person, there's no telling all the things that might've been said about her. The state of affairs could have gone on indefinitely, but something extraordinary happened an idea occurred to Mrs. Pavesini. Oh boys, if only I had some room, how I'd like to make some pasta for you. <laughs> Here I quote in part, this is the longest sentence in literature now. And in that moment, we all thought of the space that her round arms would occupy moving backward and forward over the great mound of flour and eggs while her arms kneaded and kneaded white and shiny with oil up to the elbows. And we thought of the space the flour would occupy and the wheat for the flour and the fields to raise the wheat and the mountains from which the water would flow to irrigate the fields. Of the space it would take for the sun to arrive with its rays to ripen the wheat, of the space for the sun to condense from the clouds of stellar gases and burn, of the quantities of stars and galaxies and galactic masses in flight through space which would be needed to hold suspended every galaxy, every nebula, every sun, every planet. And at the same time we thought of it, this space was inevitably being formed. At the same time that Mrs. Pavicini was uttering those words, Ah, what pasta, boys! The point that contained her and all of us was expanding in a halo of distance in light years and light centuries and billions of light millennia and we were being hurled to the four corners of the universe and she dissolved into I don't know what kind of energy light heat she, Mrs. Pavassini, she, who in the midst of our closed petty world had been capable of a generous impulse. Boys, the pasta I could make for you, a true outburst of general love initiating at the same time the concept of space and, properly speaking, space itself and time and universal gravitation and the gravitating universe, making possible billions and billions of suns and planets and fields of wheat, and Mrs. Pavazzini scattered through the continents of the planets, kneading with flowery, oil-shiny, generous arms, and she lost at that very moment, and we, mourning her lost. Or is she? Or is she equally present in every moment, her act of love embodied in every unfolding of this amazing world? What is so lovely is a sense of this universe as a creative impulse to express love and as the ongoing longing to come together again, to reconnect. And in the sense of world as lover, there becomes this possibility that wherever we look, whether it's at a driver in another car, or at a drooping leaf right now, or in the eyes of someone we love, wherever we look, we can see that this too is part of the world that we are rediscovering our belonging to. There's nothing exempt that we can't begin to include in our awareness, include that sense of, okay, I belong to this too. And in the inclusion we become bigger and bigger. si, I am that. That are thou. What it means is that there's nothing that's not a part of us. And part of this sense of the world as the beloved is what allows us to realize that connection. So it's a practice. It's a practice as we sit still because things appear, and if they're very pleasant, our conditionings to grab on. If they're unpleasant, our conditionings to resist. So we practice as we sit here with this inclusion, the sense of belonging, the sense that we can relate with kindness and appreciation to whatever arises. And then our practice is to go into the world and then let this life happen and discover that same quality of connectedness, of belonging. So we see the trees and we hear the wind and whatever arises, the bird sounds, another's voice, the feeling of our breath, it all becomes world as lover, part of what we're willing to relate to. And when we feel the pain of being thrown out of the garden, we find that the sense of the lover is that it's way out there and out of reach. And then we let that pain itself become what we belong to. Do you understand that the pain actually is the pathway back into connectedness? We relate to whatever arises. If we begin this practice of even noticing the things we most subtly push away and letting ourselves belong with that too we rediscover a sense of belonging to this world. A Chippewa song Sometimes I go about pitying myself while I am carried by the wind across the sky There's nothing missing in this moment. Look, check, just sense inside, is there anything really missing when you get very present? Everything's part of awareness that's experienced. We can't fall out of the web of life because we are the web of life. when we take refuge in world as lover, when that becomes our practice, and it takes a creativity to see the sense of what Merton calls the invisible divine in anything that arises, when we do that, we find that we more and more naturally sense it's part of us. Now, we can invoke a sense of world as lover when we're feeling very small. And the way we do it is through our senses, just bringing to mind somebody that we love, something we're very connected to. I know for myself there have been many times in the last years that I felt small and disconnected and separate and lonely. And I have a certain tree I go to And it's got a root that's above ground. And so I'll sit down next to the tree and put my hand on the root. And in some way, my meditation will be, okay, this is life and it's kind of shading me and I'm connected to it. And kind of sense the um, generosity of tree, you know. And it's a favorite tree, but as I sit and feel a sense of connection to it, then it really becomes that the whole world is holding me, not just the energy of that tree. And then I realize that it's not the world holding me, but there's just a sense of belonging. That process, when we reach out, can start with somebody that we love. It can start with a tree, an image, a picture. Somewhere where we feel connection. We all have some strand where we feel belonging. And if we can let ourselves feel that belonging very viscerally in the heart, then naturally, as Einstein describes it, our circle of belonging starts spreading outward and outward until nothing's outside of mind. We are are belonging to it all. Started off tonight describing how a number of people really felt in their bodies and their hearts the difficulty of the drought as we practice this path of paying attention and of dropping in and feeling the changing flow and the relatedness to this world, we really are able to listen to the world around us. This is Gary Lawless. When the animals come to us asking for our help, will we know what they're saying? When the plants speak to us in their delicate, beautiful language, will we be able to answer them? When the planet herself sings to us in our dreams, will we be able to wake ourselves and act? Because we've each tasted separation, we can relate to both the suffering of separation and the longing for connection. That's the jeweled Nedavindra, the sense of that we can feel our love for all the other jewels because there's some innate connectedness. And as we really let go into that love, we sense we are the web itself. We're all of it. Now this is Thich Nhat Hanh. And Just hear these lines as if it's addressed to you and meditate for a moment. Being rock, being rock, sit and being rock, being gas, being mist, being mind, being the Masons traveling among galaxies with the speed of light. You have come here, my beloved one. You have manifested yourself as trees, as grass, as butterflies, as single-celled beings and as chrysanthemums. But the eyes with which you looked at me this morning tell me you have never died. Continuing in quietness, letting whatever arises in awareness be related to with presence and compassion. Letting this life belong in your awareness, letting your being belong to this web Is there anything outside of awareness? Is there anything missing from this moment? chanting Om. This time, as we chant, as you, after you finish with the exhale, just breathe in and begin chanting again, and let your voices mingle. You can harmonize and sense this interrelated world of sound and heart that we belong to. Please inhale deeply. Ah. to extend your prayer, your care, that all beings may benefit from our reflection, our attention, that all beings may be free from suffering, that all beings may touch great and natural peace, that all beings may awaken and be free.